Good evening, everybody. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is our text tonight. Um, The great test of Abraham's faith, but maybe even greater, a future look at the cross and all of the redemptive work that the triune God had planned. And so we'll dive into this text, follow along as we read a very familiar text, but a text that um, we never get tired of studying. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two, young, two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his and took his hand in his hand the knife, excuse me, in the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, "My father." And he said, "Here I am, son." And he said, "Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?" Abraham said, "God will provide for Himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son." So the two of them walked on together. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you... Fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thickets by his thorn. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the place, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord he will provide. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sands which is on the seashore. And the seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. It's such a comfort to turn to it time and time again. Uh, uh, Many of us spend every day a little bit at least in the word. And then we have times like this where we corporately come and sit underneath the teaching of God's word. We pray that once again it will not return void and it will accomplish all that it sets out to do in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. We thank you for the great reminders of 
of patriarchs that went before us, the faith that you gave them to live a life as an example. But Lord, we know that it's more than just a picture of a man's example, Lord. We know that your son is pictured in this, so help us see him in all of this. Thank you for each and everyone that's here. We pray for those who are going through procedures this week and even some that have suffered this week through difficult things, Lord. We pray that you would comfort them, that we'd be mindful of them, remember them and visit them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last month, Pastor Jason preached on this text, if you remember, um, in the first part of September. So I don't think I can preach it any better than Pastor Jason did. Uh, I love that sermon. Um, plus, repetition's a good thing for us, isn't it? It's good for us to hear something over and over, and it stirs our memory, and it stirs our thoughts. So today, as you'll notice, your notes are blank. <laughs> um, and you can write down whatever you want, but listen to the story of Genesis 22. Sit back and listen to it. Listen to what God is telling of the greatest story, and this is what I believe it's leading to, the greatest story of redemption. Because it's all pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe sit back with your Bible open. You certainly want to have that. Um, and just listen to what God is doing in this text. Well, this text, as we said, presents a clear picture of what the Father and the Son had planned to do. It's a view of something to come as much as what was going on in its day. I want you to think about this. Salvation, the plan of salvation was written down before there was anyone. And I want you to go a little bit farther with me. And and this is rough because it comes right out of the language here. The slaughter of his son was predetermined. It's tough words, aren't they? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18. The Bible says that we are purchased with his precious blood. The next verse, I believe, says that it was planned from the foundations of the world. You can't get away from the terminology. The planned slaughter of his son was laid down before the foundations of the world. God did not come to the garden and see that, well, Adam and Eve aren't going to follow me, so I have to come up with something new. The triune God laid this down before man was around. He is an all-knowing God, and he knows these things. So Genesis 2 is a type or a model of something to come when we study it. It certainly happened in real time, real people, real emotions. Everything in it is real and happening, and yet it speaks to something much further down the road, something that awakens our conscience to truth. But according to verse 1, the Bible says in verse 1, that God tested, notice that in your text, God tested Abraham. He tested his faith. Now think about all that has gone on with Abraham's life. Chapter 11, he calls him out of the land of Chaldeans. Chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make this great nation out of you, that all of the nations of the world would be blessed. It's a tremendous promise, certainly pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ, but the prosperity of, of Abraham's family. He moves on through there. He has to deal with Lot, who takes the better land, and then he has to rescue Lot. He has to go to war and beat five kings. Then he starts to wrestle with his own faith, whether he can believe God or not. In that great eventful night of Genesis 15, 6, he's called out of his tent. He's told to stare at the stars and asked if he could count them. And then God says, look, the things that you think can't be done, I can do. 
And he reminds him of the promise. And at that time, Abraham believes, we believe that is a point of salvation for Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. But you think, hey, he believes. He's a, he's a Christian. <laughs> you know, he's a follower of God at this time. And yet some of the worst things come after that, right? There's, there's a rejection of belief in God. He puts his wife in harm's way several times. He keeps trying to offer servants and anybody else who could be this promise. And each time God says, no, 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 no. And the last time was one of the most dangerous. And as we studied last time, we realized that Sarah ended up in this Philistine's king's harem probably for months. And the seed of Christ could have been destroyed by a pagan king. But think about all that. God had protected all the way through that. And think about what's happening here now, how he is an older man. God has provided the son. God has provided the promise that he had, has told him over and over. And what a surprise this must have been to him. Lord, we've been through so much, and you want me to do what? I mean, think about this. What, what a seemingly impossible test for a human. I mean, had God changed his mind about Isaac and the promise? How would God make good the promise to fulfill this great nation that was going to come? And how would it be filled if God's telling him to kill his son? How does God know what he's doing? Is he the God of God? Is he the one that knows all things? And can he be trusted? These things doubtlessly had to go through his mind. Because God decided to not use him any longer. And so we see how Abraham responds. This long-awaited, beloved son. Can you imagine when he came? I remember our sermon, we said a boy is a boy. It's a boy, right? Uh, the long-awaited one is born. With this, with his God-given faith, now accept, now accept this challenge, now accept this test. With his God-given faith, hold through this ultimate test. Well, from this narrative, we see no hesitation in Abraham. It's amazing. It is a narrative. We don't have everything that took place in there, but it, what God wants us to know, what's here. And we see no hesitation in Abraham. And when told to offer his only son, there is no doubt or no questioning of God. Nothing's recorded like that. He accepts what God says. And he says, in, in a sense, we'll do that. How can Abraham respond like this? I mean, it doesn't take as hard any of us to have children, particularly a boy, in this type of setting, and maybe a, a difficulty to have that one child. And here God is asking something that seems to go against everything that God is. Well, he knew God would not give a promise, and he knew God would not break his promise nor tell a lie, because God could not lie, and he trusted God, and that's an amazing thing. He trusted and believed that God would still keep his word. But wasn't this an impossible one? Wasn't this impossible for man to do? I mean, certainly the Ten Commandments were not out yet. There wasn't the commandment that thou shalt not kill, in fact, God had protected Cain um, from his sin and from anybody killing him in Genesis chapter 4. At the end of uh, Genesis chapter 9, after Noah and his sons get off the boat, he repeals that command that if you take, take blood of somebody, your blood would be required. 
And so we see that God is for capital punishment. We looked at that when we were in Genesis 9. But here he's telling one of his servants, one of his men, in fact the man that he's called to start this great nation to do things that are against what he has taught. And think about it, Abraham was a human just like you and I. We have to come at this from a human position a little bit, right? This test of Abraham's faith was terribly difficult. It was terribly difficult. And we might even say impossible. But isn't that what God has been doing all along with this couple? In fact, as they laugh and record it, of course, in, in Genesis 17, 17, there, um, Abraham laughs, right? 18, 12, Sarah laughs. But in those comments, he says, is anything too hard for me? It's actually the word we translate, is anything too impossible for me? And so there's this understanding that everything God has been doing has been difficult and impossible. This is an amazing thing. And here in Genesis, we begin to realize that God is, God's asking something that's beyond human faith. Do you understand that? That this is not something that he asked anybody to do, and he's never asked you to do this again. The word of God was not written down at this point. He doesn't ask you to commit murder. This is beyond human faith. And so it's going to take a supernatural work that he's asking him to do. So it's impossible for Abraham to respond in his own faith. He needs a God-given faith to trust the word of God. And I think Abraham realizes that. And he realizes that God will not fail him. Now, it's hard for us to understand that there is one who never fails. It's really difficult sometimes, right? Any, anybody ever question God? It's okay, I want you to, you don't have to raise your hand, but think about this. Or, or at least said, where are you, God? Why did you not do something in that situation? If, we're any, if you're a true believer in here, you've asked that question. I have. Where are you, God? Why did you allow that to happen? And, we, and you come to this and you, you begin to understand that, that he doesn't fail, right? We know that biblically. We know that conceptually in our minds and in the word of God. And yet it's difficult to get around that. And it's because we ourselves don't keep our promises. <laughs> did you return that phone call that came in today? Or did you forget about the email I sent that you're supposed to get right back to. What about a promise about the kids you're going to go do this or that? And I mean, we, we fail all the time to keep our word, don't we? You know, how many diets have you been on? I mean, think about it. We, we, we're just liars. We're just liars, aren't we? And we struggle with truth. And so sometimes we come to God in that way. He does not struggle with truth. He doesn't miss phone calls. <laughs> He's always there. He's always speaking. He's never deserting his own. He doesn't do those things. And so it's very difficult to get our mind around. And it's a reminder that God is not like us. And when I study particularly passages like this, I have to tell myself over and over, God, I thank you that you're not like me. Because <laughs> about half the people are going to go to hell because I forgot about them. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Wouldn't that be true? He does not forget. And, and then think about Abraham. He doesn't have a Bible in front of him. He's dealing with God directly, and yet it's still the same. He has to trust the Word of God. Isn't that true? It's not written down yet for him, but it's still God's Word. Nonetheless, it's equal to everything we have here, 
Some people would say greater, I'd say no. It's God's word, whether it was spoken to him before the canon was even written, or it's written here, it's God's word. I got thinking about that today. I go, can we trust, can we fully trust God's word? You know, you don't have to turn there if you want, you can. Psalms 19, verse 7 and following, is the, one of the great passages on the sufficiency of special revelation, meaning God's word. And in there we find words that, that correlate with the word of God. There are, there are other terms, or terms that uh, are the same. So the law, the testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and judgment are all the word of God. So I wrote it in my notes this way. Let me read it to you. Because I want you to think about the word of God. And this is what he had to believe to get through a trial like this. The word of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Anybody ever need your soul restored? What have you tried to restore it with other than the word? So the word of the Lord is perfect and restores the soul. The word of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of the Lord is right, rejoicing the heart. The word of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The word of the Lord are true. The words of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. His words are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honey dripping. Moreover, by them, his words, your servant is warned, and in keeping his words, there is great reward. Abraham had to fully believe the word of God. Everything was at stake. Would he trust him? And I think this is how God desires all of us to live. Not just the great Abrahams, not just the, the great hall of faith people that you've known through your life. This is how he asked all who follow him to live. So Abraham's God-given faith had led him to believe that God's word was worth obeying. Because he can't lie. And so he, Abraham had to believe, he's asking me to do something that he is going to have to miraculously supply. Just faith alone, let alone how he's going to do this. Because these, these people that he's talking about, this great nations, somehow he has promised, and I believe his word now. I've failed him enough, but now I've come to this point where I believe him. Somehow he has to miraculously do something. Now, let me push you just a little bit. Abraham may have not been thinking of a substitute lamb here. That fact, that might have been the last thing on his mind. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11. This passage I do want you to go to. Because the commentary of the Old Testament, meaning the book of Hebrews, one of the commentaries on it, weighs in on this subject. What is he thinking? What's going to happen? I mean, Sarah was 90 when she had him. Is she going to give me another one? We'll see next week in the next chapter she dies at 127. So how, how is he going to fulfill his promise? I believe he's not a liar. I believe he keeps his word. How is he going to do this? Look at the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 17. Great hall of faith chapter. Faith is in God. That's why they're in there. By faith, Abraham, those are this, when he was tested. There's our same word, same language, right? Offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. There it is, this one and only, this beloved one, right? It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. So this is the promise, right? Everything's coming through this. 
This is where the Messiah is going to come. This is where the great nation of Israel will be raised up. This is where God is doing his work. Now look at verse 19. He considered, I love the commentary here, right? This is so helpful. That God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received back as a type. So from this text, and I think many of you know this, he had to believe a couple things were going to happen. Somehow, he was going to provide some kind of substitute for worship that day. Because remember that says they went up to worship. Or he was going to have to raise his son from the dead. Well, that's pretty amazing faith. So we get this insight into where God has brought Abraham. You know, this is the reason why the Bible teaches the importance of Christian maturity. Can you imagine a church where nobody has suffered? Can you imagine a church where no one has gone through difficult things, where they had to lean upon God moment by moment at times as they suffered greatly? Imagine a church like that. What would that church be like? Would you do anything by faith? Would you, how would your worship be? How would your preaching be? I mean, think about the ramifications of what suffering does as we trust God and as it matures us along. Abraham is somewhere between 100 and, and 137 why this is happening right here. And he's finally got to a point where God can test him and he believes the word of God. And don't don't sit back and go, well, now i got some time. (laughs) No, he wants to mature us. He wants to grow us more and more into the image of Christ. He wants to bring us to the fullness of his stature, the maturity of him. That's what he does with the body of Christ. That's what he's called leaders to do, to train, to teach, to grow people up to the stature of Christ. Now, as you turn back to the text, obviously in the narrative Real life's being played out in Abraham and Isaac's life, right? We get this great view from the cross back. Hey, praise the Lord for that, you know, in a completed canon. But real life's happening. I don't want you to miss the intensity of what's going on here. There is a clear parallel between Abraham and the Heavenly Father um, uh, in, in Christ, and there's a parallel between Abraham and his son, and God and the Father and his son, right? There's a parallel going on in there, right? So we're going to see Abraham's to offer up Isaac. God is going to offer up Jesus. Isaac's going to submit to Abraham, and Jesus is going to submit to the Father. And, and this is all happening with, with this boy. Now, and I thought about that. I start to think, okay, can we figure out his age? Is there a possible to look into the Scriptures? Well, just pinned out a few things thinking here. It's a little bit difficult to nail his age, but, but some things that might we can think about. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah's 90 at his birth, right? So he's zero when he's born. Sarah dies at 127 in Genesis 23.1. You can just look ahead and see that there in that next verse down. Sarah dies. Sarah lived 127 years. These are the years of Sarah's life. So she dies at 127. Now, that makes Isaac somewhere around 37 at his mother's death. All right, so now, we got, now we're in some parameters, right? We know he's not a toddler, right? And there's some, there's some reasons for that. Um, Abraham, verse 34, the last chapter, 21-34, says, Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. We're not sure what that means. 
And then verse 1, it says, after these things, in verse, chapter 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Now, that can be a considerable possible time. There's, you know, there's a narrative. We're talking about 2,500 years covered in the book of, of Genesis. There's no book that covers a, a larger span of time than the book of Genesis. So there's 2,500 years in the book, and, and so the narratives are moving along, right? They're, they're, they're just chunking along through time. Now, one other thing to think about is notice verse 5. It says, Abraham said to his young men, these, these are probably servants of his, um, maybe even born in his family through the years, so they're his. He says, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return. So I thought, well, maybe there's a connection between the young men and the lad. So I looked at the Hebrew, and it's the same word. It's na'ar. It's interesting. I go, well, it's the same term. So maybe the young men are close to the same age as lad. Now, I don't think Abraham said, hey, junior hires, let's go for a three-day donkey ride. That would be torture. <laughs> Sorry if there's any junior hires in here. Um, so I think they're probably a little more grown than that. Now think about a few other things. He's certainly big enough and strong enough to carry enough firewood to consume a, a sacrifice. Supposedly him. Have you ever tried to burn up something? It takes a lot of wood to burn up something. To burn flesh and bone and all of that. Okay, So this isn't like a little kindling pile. <laughs> so he's old enough and he's strong enough to carry that. He's also intelligent enough, now think about this, um, to ask, uh, where's the lamb? He's been around long enough <laughs> to see dad offer lots of lambs. And he says, where's the lamb? Now, you know, when your junior hire's in the back and they say, Dad, how long to get there? We're almost there. They put the headphones back on. About an hour later, you say, hey, Dad, how long are they going to get there? Oh, about another hour. They're pretty easy to snowball. This kid, who, however old he is, is going, Dad, we are missing the most important aspect of this sacrifice. Where is the lamb? What a statement. He understands that that's the key, that's the central thing to worship. <laughs> it's a good lesson for the church, isn't it? What's the central thing to worship? The lamb. Sometimes he's the last in some places, but where's the lamb? And so now we start to understand that maybe, possibly, Isaac is not some young teenager. He could be in his 20s. And, and, and I thought about this. There's nothing in the text that doesn't say he could be the same age as Christ when Christ died. I'm not saying he is. I'm not saying, oh, the text doesn't. But the text is room. He's somewhere between 0 and 37. And he seems to be strong and knowledgeable. Now, Genesis 22, Isaac is certainly a foreshadowing of Christ. And I think often we see the work of Christ's cross as presenting He's presenting as an offering. He's presenting himself as an offering or he's a sacrifice to God on our behalf. And I think that's very accurate, right? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says, Walk in love just as Christ also loved you, gave himself up for you. And listen to these words right here. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So I think often we see Christ, and I think rightly so, and the Bible portrays him as an offering. He is a sacrifice on our behalf. Isn't that beautiful? But I want you to go a little farther with me today. But just as much as that's true, God the Father 
is the one who offered the sacrifice. Just like we see in this text, Abraham is offering his son, so the father offers his son. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That's the Lord's doing. Some verses you're very familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, this is God who's offering up his son, Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. So God, in a sense, slaughters his own son in a, in a public arena on behalf of our sins. Doesn't make you, it makes me, it's hard to say those things. But that's exactly what happened. And so when we think through this, yes, the Lord was willing to lay down his life for us, and he did, but judgment required an execution by the Father. I mean, it just required it. The wages of sin is death. There had to be a blood sacrifice for that. There, there, was, there was an execution that had to take place. God required that. But notice the language of Elohim here in chapter 2. It's a direct order. When we start to think about the sons here, whether it's the son of God or the son of Abraham, he says, take now your son, your only son. And if that's not enough, he adds this little phrase, whom you love. Whew. I mean, can you do that? This is This is hard. This is language you and I use of our children. The ones we love. Some of you worked hard. It was difficult to have birth, to get a child. And, and, and I mean, I've talked to many couples and many times in my office, tears through the years of couples that could not conceive. Can you imagine what Abraham and Isaac, I mean, Abraham and Sarah went through? And here is God using these very warm, very affectionate terms. I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. He's beloved by you. And I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. So the words are precise, they're repetitive, and they must have penetrated deep into the heart of Abraham. He's human. It must have. And though he was set on pleasing God and obey him, it is not hard for us to imagine how difficult that must have been. And obviously the God of creation has given a direct order that flew in the face of his promise. Wait a minute. We just went all through all these things. This was the promise that had motivated him for so long. Doubtlessly had brought him to repentance as he watched God protect his wife, which he failed to do. And here he's asking something that is beyond measure probably to him. And yet he has this faith to believe as we see in the text. Well, I want you to think about Christ here and just in a little bit. In the same way, Jesus Christ, the absolutely clear, beloved Son of the Most High, he is the promised one. He is the blessing to all the families of the earth. He is the one that God is offering up. 
He's fully equal to the Father, yet he takes within this triune Godhead the role of the, of the second member of the Trinity as the full Son of God, full heir of all things. He steps out of heaven in order to be slain by his Father for us. And as we turn back to the human aspect of this, our, our, human, our human hearts can't, can only sympathize with that. Abraham and Isaac at the realization of the, sep- of, of the separation that's going to come. He, he had to come to grips with that. It, we just, it's a narrative we don't have a lot in there, but he rode a donkey for three days. He gets off the donkey, tells the men to stay there. They walk up this mountain, right? All that time, is he, is he just empty-minded? No way. He's human. And though he has great trust in God, he is saying, God, you are asking me something I can't do on my own. Boy, that's where God shines, isn't he? When you and I finally get to the point where we say, I can't do it, God. And he shows up. And so obviously the God of creation is directing this. There's biblical parallels. They're sharp and clear. Gives us some insight into, I think, the infinite heart that's wrenching with pain. That is this triune Godhead gives up the second member of the Trinity, he heads to earth, adds flesh to his deity, and ends up on a cross. And listen, I thought about this long and hard. God is not some cold, emotionless person in any way. In fact, he says, let us make man in our image. And one of the things we understand is he made us uniquely like him. We have emotions. We love, we hate, just as he does. We feel, we sense things. God is that way. He created us above all of the rest of the creation. We have that, your dog doesn't. And so we realize that this was, this had to be in some non-sinful way, heart-wrenching step of the Father and the Son. Revelations chapter 13 verse 8 tells us that Jesus' planned, his slain was planned before the foundations of the world. And God knew that he would offer his Son up on our behalf. And he watched. There is a point where he turns his back on the son. We know that, right? But he watched godless men put his son to a trial. Spit, mock, eventually drag a cross through the streets and then put him on it, nailed him, dropped him into that hole and watched the world walk by and wag their finger at him. And he died like a common thief. The Lord watched that. The reason is because all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord, listen to this, has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. That's why I speak, try to speak fairly graphically when I think about my sins, what God did. That's why you hear me say things like, God judged Jesus like he committed my sin. That's graphic, isn't it? Because the wages of sin is death. And so the Lord caused our iniquity to fall upon him. The, the terminology, why didn't you just say, well, that he would just die for it? The terminology is, man, it's coming from every direction, the four corners of the earth. All those who would believe, all those who would be credited righteousness through faith in Christ alone, all that sin falls upon him. This is what he's done. Listen to this as you're thinking of a dad. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led 
to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before his shears, so he did not open his mouth. See any parallels in our text? We don't see rebuttal by Isaac. And think about this. Isaac is fully aware, probably by now, heading up the hill. There's no lamb. Dad's already said, well, the Lord's going to provide. And in the narrative, at least, there's no rebuttal. There's no questioning. There's no struggle. And it isn't hard to think about this. If he's even a teenager, and Dad's 130-some-odd years old, I think he can take him. You have this aging father and nowhere in the text do we see him resist or refuse not to blame his father. You know that great text in 1 Peter chapter 2. We were, I was talking about this with somebody this week in my office. Verse 21, it says he's left us an example to, and the example is to suffer unjustly. That's what we do. And, he, and the text, of course, goes on that there was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile and return. When he was uttered threats, he did not return those threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And so Isaac is, is somewhat in this narrative as a picture of Christ, right? Look at verse 9. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son and laid Isaac on it. On top of the wood, and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay, there's our word again, his son. And so, just like Christ, we see this, Isaac is silenced in his obedience. And just like the Lord was himself, he voluntarily laid down his life. It seems that to be true here with Isaac. And the narrative's eerily similar, isn't it? Abraham is trying, excuse me, Abraham is here tying his only beloved son to the altar as he's submitting to uh, Yahweh's request and his son is submitting to his father's request. Wow. What a, what a phenomenal teaching this is. So the father, likewise, sentenced his son to the cross for the wages of our sins. And the Father watched the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the sentencing, the cross that the Father had given him. He was despised by the, he was despising the shame and in order to bring us to him. And so Jesus quietly before Pilate, quietly before his accusers, even quietly on the cross like a lamb led to slaughter. We, through the years of putting a lot of steers in the freezer and those we, we usually shoot and they, they just die on mat room. We just know how to put them down. But when you solder lambs, um, and we've done this a couple times, shooting them is bad. It doesn't, it just, they, blood goes in the meat. There's problems with that. So I was with a dear friend at church and we were killing some lambs one day and, and I had never done it before. And I said, Todd, how do we do this, you know? He says, we hold them, and they'll get really still, and then we just stick their juggler, and they bleed out. It's the best way to put up a lamb. And I mean, my mind's going, whoo, there's some Old Testament picture. And so I'll never forget holding that lamb we had fed. We'd raised him, ready to put him in the freezer, and we stuck him, and he didn't squirm. He didn't bawl. He didn't do anything. And then he just went down. It was such a picture. So many things in the you know, agriculture world that just are so true to the Bible. 
And I thought, and I just could not help but think of Christ. We know Isaac could have overpowered his father. We know, Jesus says in Matthew 26, he could have called 12 legions of angels, 6,000 6,000 persons in one legion. He could have called those angels, right? One angel knocked out 185,000 Assyrians in one night in the Old Testament. He could have called 12 legions of those. What are you going to do with your sword, Roman soldier, with that? Yet in both cases, both cases, the sons here, the son of God and the son of Abraham, choose to submit to their father. John chapter 10, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative voluntarily. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. It's amazing, isn't it? The human element of the narrative is so moving that every word seems to be chosen for maximum impact as you study this thing. Isaac and his father have traveled three days with some of his servants to the very foot of Mount Moriah. And though it is not clear in the text, this site becomes later Solomon's temple. We know that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And in God's sovereign plan, this temple of God is going to be there and countless lambs are going to be sacrificed on that. Did you, have you, remember when you read when, when Solomon introduces and opens up the temple for the very first time? Oh my goodness, this is a blood. But I, as, a, as a rancher, I thought, what do they do with all that blood? There's thousands and thousands of oxen and cattle and lambs offered on that day. Why they're singing and all kinds of things are happening. And here it all started, right here. And we know that that is near in the proximity of somewhere of where Jesus was the final lamb. Look at seven and eight with me. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, and he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, probably the fire's in a, in a little uh, cauldron, a little, there's coals in there. They carry those from camp to camp right with them. We have the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb, I love the terminology. God will provide for himself. He does not need us. He will provide. So the two of them walked on together. Abraham had asked the servants to remain for a little while. He says, we're going to go up and worship. (laughs) I mean, you can't read too much into this, but Isaac's going, where's the worship? He said, wood, fire, sacrifice, altar. May not seem that worshipful. But in it, Isaac accepts this heavy load of wood for the sacrifice. He puts it on his back. He goes up. Christ drags his cross through the streets of of Jerusalem to the hill of Golgotha. Isaac and Abraham walk alone to the top of the mountain where Abraham builds his altar to sacrifice his son. On the way, the obvious question comes up, where's the lamb? In the faith that must have plunged into Abraham's heart as he thought about plunging a knife into his son must have been incredible because he just says God will provide. And yet he's a dad. He's a real flesh and blood, sinful, repenting man that's trying to walk with God. Out of him, that, that faith that God must have plunged into his heart at that time when he needed it, he said God will provide. That's what God does for you. He will give you that faith in those times. And so in the dark hours 
of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked the question too. Isaac says, Dad, where's the lamb? Jesus says, will this cup pass from me, Father? Isn't that interesting? Will you take this cup, Matthew 26, 39, and when he went a little farther, listen to the terminology here, drops his disciples off, it says Jesus, he went a little bit beyond them, and listen to this, he fell on his face. You ever been on your face before God? So grieved over your sin? So broken over um, somebody else's sin that has affected you? Where you've just fallen on your face and cried out to God? That's what our Savior's doing here. Just like Isaac, he asked a question too. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Not as I will, but as you. I think Isaac's question was couched in a little bit of ignorance. He's trying to put things together. He's seen dad do this before. We're missing the lamb. But he learned to trust his father's word. Just as Abraham had trusted God's word. But Jesus is a little different. He's, he's not walking to a cross with ignorance. There's no mystery what's going to happen to the lamb, the the lamb, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He knows what the father and he planned before the foundation of the world. It was a lamb that was going to die. He was going to be slaughtered. And he's full aware of the awful physical suffering and the spiritual suffering he's going to go through. He's full aware. Verse 10 says, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Isaac has seen his father sacrifice lambs many times to Elohim. And think about this. It isn't hard to do this. I explained a little bit what it is like to, to put a, a, a lamb to death and bleed it out. He knew. He knew that the knife would go into the juggler and be quick. And the life's blood would flow out of him. The narrative leads you to, the, and to see the willingness of Isaac to die here. There's no, there's no rebuttal. There's no fight in him. We see his gentle obedience to his father. However, Jesus knew what crucifixion meant. Isaac's death would be quick and probably fairly painless. But Jesus knew what a horrible torture he would go through and he would die like an awful criminal. There didn't seem to be much honor and worship in all of that. Jesus was the sinless son of God and he had no guilt. Isaac was not that. He was facing a form of judgment that could reconcile, think about this, his form of judgment would reconcile all guilty believers of all time. I can't imagine dying for just Scott's sins, what I would deserve for that. Can you imagine the death that would come with all of us? So Jesus knew the judgment that awaited him For those who had sinned and rebelled against God, he knew no one could stand by the fury of the holy hand of God. Nobody, none of us would have the right to go up and stand in front of God and say, hey, I'm here to to, to take whatever you need to give me. No one could stand there. And he knew he must stand in our place and take that brutal blow from his father. That's why, man, in the garden, in that prayer of agony, he sweats His sweat became like great drops of blood, the Bible says. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for our sins was way more powerful than Isaac and Abraham's experience. And yet, yet, this narrative shows, I think, the humanness of what was going on. And yet, what it was pointing to, something even better. Notice back on the mountain, Abraham has the altar built. The lad, the son, Isaac, he's carried the wood. 
They've now bound him to the wood. The fire's in the little cauldron pot, the side of it. The knife's now in Abraham's hand. He's ready to raise it. He's ready to strike this mortal wound against his son. And both Abraham and Isaac seem to be physically and spiritually, think about this, committed to God's plan. I'm so glad they didn't ask me. But he's committed to it. And just at the right time, guess who shows up? Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh shows up. <laughs> he's been there all along, but he's the one who provides. He's the one who provides. Look at verse 11 through 14. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, like he's been saying all along, here am I. Notice the submissive language that Abraham has in this text that we have not seen all the way through the narratives. Over and over, here am I. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him for our... Now I know that you fear God. Was it a test for God or for Abraham? Don't read more into that. This test was for Abraham and for all of us, and it was a picture showing to Christ. Notice he says, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thickets by a thorn. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering. Notice this little phrase here, in the place of his son. Substitutionary death, isn't that? And Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord he will provide. See, this is the one place in the Bible where this compound Hebrew word is used in this form. It's used in other places, um, but this is, he's only used in this phrase where he puts that terminology together here. And God did provide, and he saved, he saved Isaac. And God told Abraham not to kill his only beloved son. And Abraham had passed the test, and he believed God's promise over what he could see. Isn't that good? He believed over what he could see, and that's where, where real faith comes in. We, we live by sight way too much, brothers and sisters, don't we? And God says, live by what? He's pushing us to live by faith, to trust him. He was living that life, and he knew God would have to resurrect his son because he was the promised seed, and God would provide. And as worshipful as Abraham and Isaac's faith was, God wasn't done with the worship service the scene shifts to this nearby thicket. And don't you love this? Right behind him, God's provided a substitute for Isaac. And now instead of Isaac picturing Christ, the lamb now replaces him as the picture of Christ. It's a male lamb. It's unblemished. The, the, the thorns have caught its horn. Wow, there's an image, isn't there? They put a crown of thorns on Jesus. He was a perfect substitute. And Isaac was never intended to be the lamb. And God doesn't want you to be a sacrificial lamb. He doesn't even want our willingness or our sacrificial obedience for salvation. He does not want that. You know who he wants? He wants the lamb. Believe in the lamb. Put your faith in the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want your self-righteous faith. He rejects that. He wants the lamb. And he's only one. It's Jesus is, think about this, Jesus is God's greatest provision. People pray for money and pray for prestige and pray for wealth and pray for whatever. The greatest thing God gives you is the lamb. 
brings everything else. And this lamb died for our sins. And John the Baptist was so right when he pointed out, and behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so here he is, Jesus, the final lamb. There's nothing, there's nothing that can surpass his sufficiency. So God provides for a way for Isaac to be saved through an acceptable sacrifice in his place, just like he provides Jesus as an acceptable sacrifice for our place. The line of the promise of Jesus Christ to deliver is preserved, and now that final lamb, Jesus Christ, is provided for us. And he's, he, was, he was sacrificed to us and spared us eternal life and gave us the joy of eternal life. See, this is the message of Genesis 22. This is biblical theology. This is the, the redemptive teaching of the Old Testament. It's all headed for something. We don't go around worshiping Isaac and Abraham. We're grateful for their examples, but it was pointing to something greater. And then finally, just quickly, we're out of time. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, only God can do that, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sands which are on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of its enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> the Lord will present his son. Every knee will bow. He will rule in the gates of his enemies. They will bow their knees. Father will give him everything. Just like this passage. It would all come to the heirs. And Jesus is the ultimate one. And in the end, the Lord gives us repetition of all that he said about the stars of the heavens and the, sea, the sands of the seashore. All of that to remind him, nothing is going to stop me from saving my people. What a reminder. And so as you read the Old Testament, whether it's David picking up five stones out of a river, no way that giant had a chance of getting him. No way. No bear, no lion, nothing of that. You can follow the line of Christ, and though there are great stories and they're inspirational for us, and we can read Joshua and we can read all those, and thank the Lord for godly men and women, the Hannahs and others in the Bible, God was going to preserve that line because he had to save us. Amen? Father, thank you for a sweet time in your word tonight. We can't teach this text enough, can we, Lord? I know the guys in seminary recently went through this, and Pastor Jason taught it not too long ago, Lord, and it doesn't get old. Because you're our hero, Lord. <laughs> we have nothing without you. Though we gain the riches of the world, we have nothing without you. So it is truly about the Lamb. <laughs> oh, Lord, it's about the Lamb. And we thank you, you, Jesus, that you are the lamb that took away our sins. You appeased the Father's wrath. You willingly let your Father slay you for us, for our sake. It was our sin that put you there. But you submitted to your Father. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, keep us in the word. Keep us growing. Keep us loving you. Help us be quick repenters of sin. If, we, if we're struggling with something, may we keep short accounts, Lord. You've done all this. You provided forgiveness for us. Let us not be Christians who let sin linger in our lives, Lord. This message reminds us, Lord, that you've died for us. The payment has been made. Let us not live in sin long. May we quickly confess and repent and turn from those things because you're worthy. What a worship service this is, Lord. Praise you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.